Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, you remember back in February 2020. Couldn't forget. Before we got into the pandemic, um, we were at the Social Coast Forum in Charleston, South Carolina, an event we both loved. Absolutely. Who would have thought that it would have been the closing chapter of a whole era of history? Yeah, it was well, It was an amazing event. Um, very unusual in the coastal space to have a professional conference that was dedicated to the people of the coast and the sociology, the economics, the communities along the shoreline. Uh, so much of what's talked about in coastal uh, conferences, technical things, engineering, design, and that sort of stuff. And to have a conference devoted to people was really cool. It was. We loved the conference. We had an amazing time in Charleston. And one of the highlights was getting to interview quite a few. Uh, we did quite a few sessions there. And we did. Had some, I, I think, some of our best work, actually. Just the vibe was really good. Yep. Uh, but we also interviewed the team from the Mississippi State uh, Press. Yep. And um, we learned about several books that they were doing on the coast of the Gulf. And including meeting a couple characters who we get to talk to today yeah. and, and a, an amazing book that they've been working on. Yeah, two and a half years later, back on the American Shoreline podcast, uh, the highlight of that conference, I think, was the show that we did with the authors from the University of Mississippi Press, as you mentioned, two of whom were Carl Bra Brasso and uh, Donald Davis, who were working on a book about the history of shrimp in America and after much, much work, that book is now uh, been released, and uh, that's the subject of the show today. And you today. are holding a copy, <clears throat> and it is beautiful. It is a stunning book, ladies and gentlemen. It's called Asian Cajun Fusion, Shrimp from the Bay to the Bayou, produced by the University of Mississippi Press. It came out March 30th, so brand new. Uh, we were... Uh, kind enough, uh, lucky enough to receive a copy of this book. It is stunning, Tyler. It is such a beautiful volume. Uh, so incredible. The amount of information, it's uh, the, the photography, the historic research that goes into this, it's, it's just, man, what a cool book. It really is. And, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of our trip. It's, it's only fitting that we met uh, Carl and Don mm -hmm. uh, at the Social Coast Forum, because what's really interesting to me about this book is getting to dive into the people and right. the story of the people. And, you know, all around the American shoreline, we're trying to make sense of this relationship between local communities, the traditional uses of the landscape, and the challenges we face going forward. And in this story of the shrimp industry, we, we have yeah. uh, the story of over decades. You know, this goes back to the centuries. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well yeah. over 100 years. Yeah. It's going to be a great show, Tyler. So we're looking forward to ha talking about it, talking about Asian Cajun fusion shrimp from the bay to the bayou. Uh, going to be a great show. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest 
questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. All right, gentlemen, thank you for coming back on the American Shoreline podcast. What a treat to see the product of all of your labors. Uh, welcome to the show, Carl. Welcome, Don. Thank you for having us. It's uh, great to work with you guys again. <laughs> Our pleasure. Uh, well, I'm going to start this way. Why don't we start? Carl, can you give us an overview of this book and what prompted uh, you and Don to produce this beautiful work? Well, Don and I started working together in 2006, and that choice of date wasn't coincidental. We had just experienced two, not one, but two um, generational benchmark hurricanes that had completely uh, wiped out most of the upper Gulf Coast area. And it directly impacted numerous communities, numerous uh, economic um, activities, and it basically made it obvious immediately, at least for those who were paying attention, that we had turned a corner in the area's environmental history. So Don and I began, fortunately with the assistance of uh, some research funds, to begin exploring the history of the various um, communities, isolated communities of people who have lived on the coast for generations. Um, the issue for them is not only that, like coastal peoples throughout the world, they're living on the coast is a continuous struggle, uh, both physically and economically. But in the case of the peoples along the coast, thanks to uh, environmental change and environmental degradation, the environment in which they live is literally disappearing around them. So this was something that uh, Don and I took on because uh, unfortunately no one else seemed to be terribly interested at the time, um, aside from recording the obvious impact of hurricanes Rita and Katrina on the Louisiana coast. Um, so Don and I began systematically visiting repositories throughout the country and building up uh, a huge database of both documentation and photographs. And we slowly began digesting and sorting through all of that and culling images, which was a huge undertaking. So you're really taking this back to the, the very beginning. I mean, your interest was kind of the history of uh, Western settlement of the Gulf. I mean, are you, are you thinking about it in those terms? Well, Don and I basically were looking at the origins of many of the communities and the economic activities. Yes, we did another book called Ain't There No More, which basically explored the, uh, the settlement of the coastal plain and also the, um, the, the economic 
activities and the worldview that was formed around those economic activities. Um, basically, uh, in a word, people in positions of power uh, willing to accept uh, quick profits at the expense of long and often intractable um, pro problems. Um, and uh, this, the, the shrimp industry volume was uh, an outgrowth of that research. Um, not that uh, it, it ties in directly, but we're looking at a community that has existed in the coastal plain for, for generations, as I said. And it's a, a it's a, it's a transplant, uh, transplanted act activity. Uh, right. the, the book title makes that clear, at least we attempted to make that clear that we're looking at a situation where an industry was transplanted into the coastal plain by um, refugees from Asia who came to Louisiana via uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, from that seed, um, a major industry, American industry, has grown. Um, and over time, the industry was dominated initially by Asians, later uh, by uh, native Cajuns from the Gulf Coast area. And then after the Vietnamese influx, uh, Asian dominance began to reassert itself. It's such an incredible story. And the first time that, uh, that I heard about it and learned that the origin of the shrimp industry, Tyler, in the United States and on the Gulf Coast of America was an imported industry from Asia, primarily Chinese immigration, and operated financially through the Port of San Francisco in the Bay Area for many years. Um, Don Davis, you are a cultural geographer. I love that. Yes, indeed. And uh, Thank you. you and Carl, uh, what a team. Carl, the former director of the Center for Louisiana Studies, uh, an author of more than 40 books on the culture and history of the uh, Gulf Coast. Prolific and, author. Prolific author. And Don, you're such an also an stellar resume as a cultural geographer. Uh, introduce us a little bit to uh, your background, and tell us why this book was an important project for you and for Carl. Well, <clears throat> although I live in Louisiana, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. My father worked on the docks in San Francisco, and at about age 10, 11, or 12, I would go to work with him every Saturday and had free reign to wander over San Francisco, which where I discovered San Francisco's Chinatown. I grew up in a community that at one time was the most blue-collar community west of the Mississippi, but because that community faced San Francisco Bay, I discovered early on that in Richmond there was a whale rendering plant and a small Chinese shrimp-drying community. I finished my education in California, came to LSU, uh, graduated, met a number of people from what we call uh, Lower Terrebonne Parish. One of them took me on a field trip to an isolated shrimp drying platform. Later, I went back to California to visit, and I found a stellar archives of all of these images of shrimp drying in San Francisco Bay and how many of the 
cultural tools used were imprinted also in coastal Louisiana. Hmm. I never lost sight of that information. Carl I, and I began a partnership and we had done a considerable amount of research for the book that he mentioned, Ain't There No More. And we were talking and thinking and it just, we decided we need to find out more about the people and not the decapod. And with my interest in California, his interest in assets at Yale, we began to compile material that showed clearly that the dried shrimp industry that started in Guangzhou, Canton, came to San Francisco Bay, moved from San Francisco Bay to Louisiana, yet the product, about 95%, went by rail back to San Francisco, back to Guangzhou. So what we found is that if you think about it in a historical context, that connectivity was the emphasis for the first global market for shrimp anywhere in the United States. But as a dried product, not as something that's frozen or canned. Hmm. And so circa 1870s, this connection began in earnest. And that was the linchpin for us to begin to sort out the industry from a canned product well, from a dried product to a can to a frozen and one now that's delivered and quick frozen or fresh off the boat. It really has changed. I love the story. I would also, uh, Don, if we could just go back, I'm, I'm very interested in kind of the Asian roots of shrimping. So okay. we're going back to the 1800s. We're talking sailing vessels, I assume. Is that when you say that cultural tools i are we, we're talking like harvest techniques i mean yeah just people when, when other you... go ahead i mean I, I guess that what i'm what i'm thinking is like because this is an imported uh fish you know fishing technique i imagine from asia as well not only the drying and the the market but can you talk us through kind of that the asian roots of uh shrimping well first of all you have to put a product on a platform or surface that will allow it to dry. And to dry that product, it has to be turned frequently. So many of the rakes that are used in California, the similar design is in Louisiana. Huh. In addition, you would wrap your shoes or brogans or whatever in burlap and you would dance the shrimp to take the hull off. We have photography where the Chinese in San Francisco are in fact dancing the shrimp. The kind of tool they use to boil shrimp. First of all, you bring it ashore, you boil it, you take it out, then you air dry it. Well, the designs are exactly the same between Louisiana and San Francisco. We have no evidence that the Chinese junk appeared in Louisiana. There's photographs of Chinese junks and sampans in San Francisco Bay. However, we do use a boat called the Faluca. A Faluca can also be found in San Francisco Bay. Now we think they came independently, but it's nevertheless the same side uh, sailing vessel. They're packed in bags, same kind of bags. So they're not 
a large number of these connections, but there's enough to make it clear that it was part of what we choose in my profession to call cultural baggage. Okay, but I, I, I just want to, before shrimping appeared in the San Francisco Bay or on the Gulf Coast, pe- people, I believe in China, were shrimping in China. Is that correct? Oh, yes, in the, um, all the river estuaries, sure. And, and the techniques. And that's why they brought it, that's why they came to California. They knew how to do it. It's what they did. Interesting. And, and so did when you... they arrived in California, they said, well, even though, you know, it was actually well before the gold rush, we know how to do this. We can make a living doing this and nobody's doing it. And when they came to Louisiana, they brought the technique with them and it was highly successful. Now, prior to this in Louisiana, I'm going to ask Carl to comment a little bit. There were freshwater prawns, that is freshwater shrimp in the rivers, and it was called drunkard's food. Hmm. Carl? There's a, there was a cultural bias. Uh, the French had a cultural bias against eating uh, prawns or shrimp, saltwater uh, shrimp, as Don indicated, um, in the same way that they had a bias against eating corn, which into the 20th century, Frenchmen still considered uh, swine food, quote unquote. <laughs> so no um, th- that's uh, a hard, it was a hard sell. Uh, there are accounts of the settlers who are on the, constantly on the edge of starvation, um, harvesting resources by, with, by sayings along the coast, uh, but they strangely do not eat um, any significant quantity of shrimp, even though it's readily available in places like Lake Pontchartrain near New Orleans, simply because of these these food biases. Um, it's not until the large numbers of refugees from Saint-Domingue, uh, the area, the country that's now called Haiti, uh, it's not until large numbers arrived in New Orleans in 1809, um, and literally doubling the size of New Orleans in a six month period, that attitudes towards shrimp began to change simply because people from the Caribbean were accustomed to eating shrimp. You know, it's funny when Tyler, we, we did, we did, we've done several shows on the Maine lobster fishery. We have. And one of the things I learned, Carl, in, in those conversations was that back in the day, uh, Lobster was the food that was given to prisoners. If you were convicted and in jail, nobody ate lobsters. It was considered a trash food, but you'd give it to the prisoners. It sounds like that bias against decapod shrimp or lobster um, existed on the Gulf Coast as well. Yes, and also with uh, crawfish, which now are considered a delicacy, but they were considered, quote, poor man's food up until the late 20th century. Mm. Carl, one of the interesting things about the book in the introduction, you talk about the, the, the transformation of the American shrimp industry. In the 1960s, the book lays out this wonderful history. Um, 75% of the shrimp consumed in America was caught in the United States. These days, 90% of the shrimp consumed in America is imported. So a massive shift in the source of, of Shrimp, can you tell us about that transformation and what it has meant for Louisiana? Um, basically, uh, the culprit here is all-you-can-eat buffets. 
Wow. People. <laughs> Red uh, lobster. It, it, uh, exactly. Um, We're just cheap, eating too much of them, I guess. Cheap, unlimited <laughs> quantities of uh, food. Uh, the native um, industry simply can't compete in terms of uh, labor cost, fuel cost, and equipment cost. So uh, a as a result, um, only the higher end restaurants seem to uh, uh, sell uh, uh, domestic, domestically produced wild caught shrimp. Every, just virtually everything else is imported. And the imported, the importation of shrimp is really coming from, uh, it's an Asian product primarily, but is it also coming from farmed shrimp as opposed to wild-caught shrimp? Yes, that's correct. And the concern here is water quality and the presence of chemicals in the water that are not necessarily beneficial to humans. Do you think that is the, is the, the, Louisiana shrimp industry is referred to as beleaguered in the book. Uh, do you think that the future of the Louisiana shrimp industry is stable, even though it cannot support the market in the U.S. because of the all-you-can-eat buffets and the massive quantities of shrimp consumed now? Las but, Vegas. I'll tell you what. Yeah. Corporate number one is Las right. Vegas. <laughs> the shrimp if you, go, I, if you go to Las Vegas, you will see so many shrimp just sitting there, just like ready to be scooped out onto someone's plate. It is remarkable. It's, I think Las Vegas, and you know, Las Vegas is in the middle of the desert. There's just something yeah. about having unlimited well, shrimp it. out there. Is, man, modernity sometimes is funny. Well, we... But the problem that the problem is, do you buy a high quality product or do you go buy it by the ton and just serve it to people who have no distinctive palate for the difference? Hmm. I want to hear more about Don's, that. Don has his finger on the crux of the issue because for discerning consumers, there's no question that the wild caught shrimp is uh, significantly better than its Asian farm uh, produced uh, counterpart. Yeah. Can, there, there's absolutely, it's a huge qualitative difference. Can I would love to, uh, you know, you guys must have eaten a lot of shrimp in the production of this book. I would love to hear. I'm a Louisiana native. I've been eating it since I was old enough to walk. Well, listen. And I know what a buffet is, but it's at the household. Do you know what it's like to cook 150, boil 150 pounds of shrimp? That's no, a, but. It's not uncommon. No, it's not uncommon. Uh, you'll go out and you will go home and the locals have all of the equipment to boil, and then you just sit down at a table covered with newspaper, yeah. pour it out, and just start eating. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So it's 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 the called oil. a country buffet. I love that. So uh, first of all, I want to go to one of those in Louisiana or on the Gulf Coast, and uh, I love that this is a a real tradition that people do. Um, as far as what you're describing, the discerning, you know, palate, and and you, th this is uh, talked about in the book, that an important change uh, for the future viability of the wild caught uh, fishery is in consumers uh, valuing that product differently, and maybe, and and I think no question, higher. Um, in your own words, Don, I'm going to go to you. 
t- tell me why wild caught tastes better. Like walk me through what's different about it. Well, I think what we need to do is just take a moment and let's walk through a couple of steps. All right. First, we had a dried product. The dried product became an important item on the world stage. In Louisiana, you had a family that developed the first canned shrimp in the country. And through highly skilled marketing, by the time Henry Ford invented the mass-produced automobile, shrimp was sold in every single state in the union. Ponder that a moment. And the reason I ask that, how is a housewife in Idaho or in North Dakota or in Oklahoma or in Nevada going to use a product they've never heard of in a can? The advertising and skills were amazing. From that, it became important that you had ice. The first manufactured ice was in Louisiana. Clarence Birdseye invented refrigeration. Now the product began to move from the back of the menu to the front with the invention of one product, the shrimp cocktail. When the shrimp cocktail came in, jumbo fish or shrimp arrived. Now mm. we get into an industry that wants something that's quick frozen. Interesting. When you get to the quick frozen product, because again of Clarence Birdseye, you could put bags of shrimp in refrigeration in every supermarket that was on a wholesaler's list. So now the product goes well beyond the local region, but the local region has always had fresh off the boat. Therefore, their palates are very sensitive to the difference. But how can you be sensitive to the difference when you're in the upper peninsula of Minnesota opening a bag of frozen product? Right. Yeah. So... This region's, and and Carl has written a marvelous book called Stir the Pot, which deals with these kinds of issues that the locals will go and buy off the boat. We put a line in the book called friends don't let friends eat imported shrimp. Cajuns don't let other Cajuns eat imported shrimp. Absolutely. And the reason is, the reason is it just tastes better. And And if you've never... It's, it's also healthier. You don't have to worry about the chemicals in the product. Amen. Amen. I'm, I, listen, I think it's great. Peter, we, we, on ASPN, we're looking at uh, the American shoreline and the various uh, unique fisheries, be it Maine, uh, be it the salmon in the Pacific Northwest, the shrimping fishery along in the Gulf. And there's something really powerful here in not only generating food sustainably, and I think that's an important component, but also when you do make it a cultural thing, it becomes a uh, it becomes a, 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 a something that peer- tourists will want to come and experience. It becomes part of your culture, part of yeah, your right. food culture. Yeah. And uh, food when, tourism, it's part Just of food. And, and when it's sustainable and when, you, you know, you have you're connecting that to a sustainable source and it's part of a bigger story in your collection to the land. I actually think that that's a really powerful teaching tool more broadly. I think that's like something we need to develop and a, and a better dinner. Absolutely. Well, Louis, Louisiana, if I can interrupt, guys, yeah, Louisiana please do. seafood industry 
is absolutely essential to the continuation of the area's famous food culture. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You can't separate the future of the industry from uh, the viability of the, the food industry, which, let's face it, is a mainstay of the South Louisiana economy. Right. Well, you know, I, it, so here, if I'm following the storyline, back in the 1800s, the immigration and of, of uh, Chinese uh, immigrants and the development of a dried shrimp uh, industry, which was for export primarily to China, and then the steps into mass marketing of, China, of uh, shrimp, first canned and later frozen. I mean, this is the mass market product. The current importation of farm shrimp is a mass market product. And what y'all are arguing, and I think quite legitimately, is that the native shrimp industry in Louisiana is a really important economic uh, activity, for the, but is also culturally significant for Louisiana. Um, is the industry, is the native shrimping industry in Louisiana healthy now? What's the status? That's really hard to say because we've been hit by five major hurricanes. And the first people to take the brunt of, in one case, not sustained, but winds that the anemometer blew off at 180 miles an hour, the boats are at risk. And the boat is how you make a living. And now there, you have to look at recapturing and rebuilding your shrimp fleet. No small task. To put it in perspective, a big boat, now that's one that can go offshore for a month, has all of the equipment to freeze in as far south as the Bay of Campeche. The fuel is somewhere between 30,000 and 50,000 gallons at the dock. Wow. This is diesel. Wow. It's five to six dollars a gallon. So we'll use five. $150,000 before you leave the dock. Wow. Now, those capital costs, folks don't even think about. It's just a shrimp. Yeah. You have no comprehension of the science involved by a boatman. After all, he's just a fisherman or a fisherwoman. He's a captain or she's a captain of a boat. What do they know? They know they got $150,000 debt before they leave the dock. These are very real problems. However, on the other side of that coin, I'm an eternal optimist. But it's not going to be easy. Carl? Well, Don mentioned the, the cost of operating, the cost faced by fishermen when their boats are uh, transported five or 10 miles inland. Um, these are $5 million investments, just the boats alone. But when wow. the storm comes through, and as Don mentioned, we've had five major storms on the northern Gulf Coast in the last two years. Uh, you're looking at huge infrastructure damage that compounds the issue of getting the boats back on, in the water. Um, the electrical grid is often wiped out. After uh, Ida and September of last year, there were 1.4 million customers without power for days and in some areas weeks. Um, 
after the storm made landfall. Uh, you've got roads that have washed away, homes uh, that are damaged. The, and for uh, fisher families with children, this is a huge consideration. Same thing's true for local stores and schools. Uh, it's, it's uh, I think I'm, we mentioned in the, in the conclusion that uh, the changing environment is a cruel mistress with which the, the locals need to learn to dance. Uh, and I think that's um, it in a nutshell. We're looking at a rapidly increasing pace of hurricane landfalls. Uh, we're looking at serious erosion issues. We're looking at degradation of uh, environmental quality in the estuaries. Um, but even saying that, you have no idea how stubborn um, <laughs> South Louisianians can be. Yes, they're famously resilient, but they are also extremely stubborn. And I don't see them turning loose unless uh, dire circumstances absolutely force that move. Right. Let me let me add to that. When Carl and I submitted the manuscript for our narrative review, we were given about a, a year to do all of the other stuff that has to go, maps, diagrams, etc. You can imagine. And then Ida comes through and we pleaded with the press, and actually it wasn't difficult at all. The staff at the University Press of Mississippi is just wonderful to work for. We had said we'd like to add a piece at the end of our book that shows about Hurricane Ida. So we had uh, basically 14 days. We pushed it to 21. My job was to go out and interview people. Now you have to understand there's no power lines. Police are redirecting traffic. You've got to get down to the ice house, get to the ice house, and there's a fellow who is putting ice on his boat that had to come from Biloxi, Mississippi, because when his boat's in port, he's not making money. The hurricane is still a blackout in the region, and you see him going, he's going shrimping. When I say resilience, Carl and I think that these folks are just amazingly resilient because that's what they do. There is no quit. It's One a... thing you need to understand, guys, the importance of electricity in this industry, simply because without refrigeration, the modern shrimp industry cannot exist. Um, we worked with biologists and field agents in trying to determine just how long shrimp would survive uh, as a viable product on a boat in the hole um, after being caught in the Gulf of Mexico. And the consensus was about five hours without mm. refrigeration. Wow. So you can imagine boats that would have come in during this period, uh, where do they go with their cargo simply because it will spoil the minute it's unloaded from the boat. Um, so, and, again, and again, considering what fuel costs are now, uh, it, it's a huge, huge variable in the uh, survival of the industry. And when you look at the early history of the French market, shrimp were being sold daily, but they had to come by sailboat and they had to often be 
pulled along a towpath to get to market. So there were some devices used, uh, uh, a shrimp or fish box that had slats that let water circulate, all kinds of things. But the time frame was critical. And even during Ida, there were ports available, but you had to go to Biloxi, Mississippi, or over towards Houston, little community called Delco. It wasn't convenient, but they were going shrimping, and the catches were incredible. But again, without electricity, there were there is one shrimp shed that didn't get electricity until early May. And he makes his living freezing shrimp. Well, I think the challenge is what's great about this book, Tanner, what I loved about it, Don and Carl, is... Uh, you know, you could write it. You could do an economic analysis of the shrimp market. You could talk about the trade and the economics and how much money is being made, or how the industry is shifting from sourcing of, of shrimp. Um, it could have been a dry, you know, market analysis book. That's not what y'all produced. This book is a tome and it is a is a testament to the love of the people who are on the Gulf of Mexico and in Louisiana. And and I'll just I'll just add that shrimping comes into America like a comet out of left field. You know we are accustomed in in kind of the Western way of thinking that things come from the east and move to the west over the Atlantic. Hmm. And it's very interesting in this American story that it comes from the west to yeah. America over the Pacific. And uh, I bet, and, and and Carl and Don, I would love, when you tell people, when you tell these Louisiana shrimpers that indeed the story of Gulf shrimping is that it came from Asia by way of the San Francisco Bay to the Gulf of Mexico. Do, I, I mean, that, yeah. I wouldn't believe that until, you know, you you're, I'm struck by the title of your book. You don't leave it out. I mean, the first word is Asian. I mean, this stuff, shrimping comes from Asia. Is that, are people surprised to learn that? Well, the old timers, and I'm talking now about people who would be in their late 80s or 90s, generally understood that Chinese, the Chinese, and to a lesser extent, the Filipino communities in Louisiana's coastal plain paid a, played a pivotal role simply because every time they were out harvesting shrimp in the marshes, they encountered um, people who were operating in places like Manila Village or Basa Basa or some of the other shrimp drying communities that were all strictly Asian um, run, owned and operated. Wow. Yes, and um, one of the largest wholesaler of dried shrimp, in fact, it's the, only, the oldest family owned shrimp wholesaler in the world is in Houma, Louisiana. It's Bloomin' Bajron, founded in 1913, although they had been selling shrimp before that. All of the shrimpers know that the small shrimp called Seabob can be dried and marketed locally through Bloomin' Bajron, who had an agent in San Francisco helping move the product well into the 1950s from San Francisco to Chinatowns and to China itself. So this, this connection, if you were born and raised in the marshes, you just knew about it. 
the Chinese were there. Whereas if you moved north of the marshes and moved up into New Orleans, for example, or Baton Rouge, they had no clue. You know, it's funny because, you know, I didn't grow up in Louisiana, but uh, so I'm, I'm not versed in the history. But one thing I do know about Louisiana cooking is it is based in Cajun culture. And we hear about it. It is it is the dominant understanding of so much of Louisiana cuisine. Uh, and yet this significant Asian influence seems to be overlooked. Um, I mean, obviously, there are people in the know, but um, how do you account for the fact that the, the understanding of Louisiana uh, culinary traditions, is it true that it's that the Asian influence is generally not understood? I think that's true. Um, we, uh, I grew up in St. Landry Parish, which is in the Louisiana coastal plain. And um, my mother, for example, you know, during the Lenten season, the area was and remains predominantly Catholic. During the Lenten season, we used dried shrimp produced by these platforms um, as a protein source during the, the Lenten meatless days. Hmm. But no one had a clue as to <laughs> where this product came from or how it, it managed to become a staple in Louisiana. And there's a national phenomenon that we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, yeah. The Chinese were so successful in San Francisco Bay that local Italians and others um, and that went on the rampage to bar Chinese from coming into this country. The Chinese Exclusion Act was signed in 1882, repealed in 1943. So for 61 years, there was a quota system. And I had learned that it was 105 visas per year. Wow. A gentleman who was very helpful in putting this book together, correct me quickly, was 104. Mm. So for 61 years, it was better to be nearly invisible. And, and they achieved that invisibility in Louisiana by moving into the, the coastal marshes where they essentially were out of mind and out of, out of sight and out of mind. Wow. Yeah, you have to remember when we say coastal marshes, we're talking about a land area that can't make up its mind if it wants to be land or water. I can show you USGS quadrangle maps that do not have a five-foot contour. It's a census taker's, taker's nightmare. Forget about postal delivery. And the sheriff's department doesn't have a boat that can get there. So you can literally disappear. But you disappeared producing a product that could get to market. Man. And it's so it was better for the Chinese as well as we can say for Croatians, Germans. There were other ethnic groups that didn't come over on the Mayflower who developed their own benevolent societies. And these, these were many ethnic minorities belonged to a benevolent society and its purpose was to maintain cultural ties. In some ways, savings and loan, uh, be sure you had your same religious contacts and they're found all over the country. And so it was better just to be nearly invisible. And they're pretty successful at it. 
Yeah, I've always thought it was one of the most interesting things about American uh, immigration policy uh, through our history. There's two reasons we want to keep people out. Um, the common one and popular these days is that we don't want people coming here because they're not good at anything. Yeah, uh, they a, have it's nothing. a drain on society. It's a drain on society. They're coming in. They're going to take our benefits. They're going to. They're not hardworking. Yeah. The other way we keep people out is when they're incredibly successful. We tell them we we don't want you here because you're too much competition, and that's also present in American immigration policy today. We see it, for example, in university admissions where they're trying to limit sort of the number of Asians or the most successful academic players from uh, dominating the class structure. So I don't know, this is a little bit of an aside, but as a cultural geographer, um, Don, how do you, you know, this, there's, an, there's an element of race involved in this story. Can you speak to that? Well, I think you've done a good job. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I can add anything. Or better yeah. yet, well, why would I want to add? It's always, it's always been the case. Uh, it, we know that the Chinese six companies, which were the principal benevolent organization operating in San Francisco for the Chinese, the company that was here was called the Guangsung Company. They filed incorporation papers in 1923. And when you read the incorporation papers, they own five boats. Now, wait a minute. Who underwrote the five boats? It wasn't the local bank. And we know they were here by 1870. So 50 years before they incorporated, they were a vital part of the industry. But they're invisible. Many, you, you've hit it on the head. Some are too successful. Some aren't as successful enough. Well, I mean, eugenics is around even today. Mm -hmm. The point is, in our work, the Chinese get high marks. Wow. I, you know, there's, there's I, also the case of the Bohemians. You know, that, that's another ethnic group that uh, gets the short end of the stick. Um, and again, they're basically invisible to most people until a few interested individuals start exploring the issue of um, child labor abuse. Tell us, uh, I don't know what the Bohemians refers to. Can you help me out and help our listeners out as well? The fish processing industry in America in the late uh, 19th and very early 20th century imported our... Uh, imported large numbers of East Asia, I mean, Eastern European immigrants hmm. uh, and basically use them as, as in a position or put them into a position that would be roughly comparable to peonage. They basically made them forever indebted to the, the communities. And uh, most of them operated out of uh, most of the companies who served as labor brokers for these people um, existed in uh, Baltimore, where the oyster canning industry was based. But they farmed them out to the northern Gulf Coast and literally put hundreds of people in boxcars and shipped them down to the Gulf Coast areas where they worked in the shrimp and oyster canning factories. Uh, in, in absolutely miserable working conditions and even worse living conditions. 
Hmm. Yeah, before the invention of the Le Perrier, Le Pain, autom automatic shrimp peeler, all shrimp had to be peeled and deheaded by hand. And it's piecework, brutal piecework. Children as young as two were helping wow. in the opening of oysters in Mississippi and Louisiana. Wow. So there is another part of this story that has been lost, if you will. Um, the Croatians that came here, uh, there was a, we have a boat type called a Biloxi trawler. Actually, it was developed in uh, Biloxi by Jaco Jack Kovacevic. Name alone tells you that he was a successful Croatian. So we have a boat type called the Floridian or Floridian. It was developed in Fernandina Beach by Greeks. We have jumbo shrimp that were discovered, quote unquote, out of, out of Morgan City, but really much earlier. And it was Italians that were involved. So we can step through a large number of minorities that played pivotal roles in this industry and others, but they're forgotten unless somebody like Carla and myself take the effort to try to open people's eyes to something other than the buffet. Oh, I love that. That was so well said. Uh, yeah. You know, because this is a melting pot story. And uh, that co I, I feel like I've, I've said this to you before, but this is what I love about coastal areas mm -hmm. is that because whether it's a, the ports, the commerce, the fact that there's life-sustaining food and ways to make money, but it brings so many different people of different backgrounds together and forces us to find a way to get along. And what's fascinating is, you know, you might think about these communities. It's easy to think about a hundred years of history and boom, now we're in modernity and we have uh, this product and there's Chinese history in it. But to think about how that melting pot action actually happened and that there were invisible communities that disappeared off to these coastal Netherlands that you would just kind of be, they disappear yeah. into the landscape, but still had an industry, still had a way of uh, buying boats and sustaining themselves. Uh, it turns out that the melting pot process is a process, isn't it? And it's, it's really, I, I love that Carl and Don, that you both did this book. And I just think that it's so enriching to think about how this industry came to be and the people that made it over time. I mean, I just had no idea. Well, before you end, uh, I'd be remiss if Carl and I didn't point out that the only way we could do this is that the Louisiana Sea Grant program allowed two old war horses in retirement <laughs> to follow our passions. And consequently, we had enormous support. There is a reason this book is affordable. Somebody yeah. has to put a few nickels into the pot, and Sea Grant did that. In addition, the Third Coast series, under Carl and my tutelage, but with the absolute support of the University Press of Mississippi, has been able to showcase some human elements that are forgotten. And so... I think I can speak for Carl. We certainly appreciate all the work Sea Grant has done for us, but we also appreciate all the work that University Press of Mississippi has done. You have a copy of our book that got there pretty quick. It did. It is so spectacular. And uh, 
for the listeners out there, this is truly, uh, as you can tell, just from this brief conversation we've been able to have with uh, Carl uh, and Don, that this is a rich history and an important understanding of one of the main industries on the Gulf Coast of the United States. And uh, this is a kind of academic research and history uh, this is this needs to be a movie, y'all. This could you imagine this in the hands of Ken Burns? I mean, come on. Uh, you know, Tyler used to work with Ken Burns. We need to send him this book. This would be a great documentary. Series. First of all, Ken Burns would love this book because it looks like a Ken. Bur- I mean, this is uh, if you've ever seen a Ken Burns documentary companion book, the tabletop book. This is basically what yeah. Carl and Don have done. So Peter, I, I totally agree with you. We need it. And there's so much to explore that we did not get to in, in our show here. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, you got to go buy the book and check it out. Um, and I, I would also, I just love that Sea Grant uh, and uh, the University of Mississippi Press have made this happen. It's absolutely enriching to uh, the understanding of the Gulf Coast and the yeah. broader American shoreline. We have communities like this everywhere, and it makes you curious where things came from. And that, to me, yeah. is uh, an important start of how we need to begin to think about uh, our our footprint, the way we interact with wild caught fisheries, aquaculture, all of it. It's it's uh, it's great work, guys. Fantastic work. And uh, I know we're getting uh, to the end. Don, if we'd uh, love to get the final word from each of you. Don, if you wouldn't mind uh, wrapping up this episode for our listeners out there, what are your closing thoughts? Well, first, thank you for inviting Carla and I. It's nice to showcase an effort that took approximately four years. And more important than that, what we've done is appreciated by people who've never lived here. All we're doing is commenting on what has been invisible to most, but to Carl and I are a valuable part of what gives this area its pulse. Mm. We like to say that resiliency is tattooed to our coastal citizen's soul. I think you've seen this by how you have commented on what we've written. Carl? Well, I'd like to go back to something mentioned uh, just a, a bit earlier uh, about the fact that the, the melting pot in the coastal plain. And I think that's exactly right. That's something that America desperately needs to uh, revisit, to understand that peoples in a community like this don't necessarily like each other, but they understand that their survival is based on coming together for a common goal. And that is why these communities have been resilient for so long. What a great story. Um, I hope, I'm so glad that the, uh, that Sea Grant uh, turned you all loose for four years, gave you enough money and the press, uh, the university press and, uh, we're able to support this work. It's important that this gets done. And you know, there's wonderful stories all along the American shoreline. Uh, this is such an, a beautiful work. Uh, so, so well put together. Um, we encourage all the listeners out there, take a look, go on Amazon. It's called Asian Cajun Fusion, Shrimp from the Bay to the Bayou, ladies and gentlemen. It is Carl Brasso and Donald Davis, uh, 
joining us on the American Trailline podcast. What a great book. I wish we had another hour. Uh, we really appreciate y'all taking the time out to tell us about this beautiful piece of work. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Our pleasure. Our pleasure.